Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Simon mentioned, my name's Kevin, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Hillside. Uh, would you turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 7? Uh, Matthew chapter 7, it's about this far in. We've been in Matthew for a while, so hopefully that's part of your Bible is almost wearing out a little bit. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to visit uh, my friend in England. I have a close friend in England. I, have, I feel like multiple close friends in England. Um, but while we were wandering around London one day, uh, we stumbled upon this Twinings tea shop. Uh, and we went in. There it is. You can tell I was a little younger then. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know how some people really, really get into their job? Like these are the employees you love to see at a store who love their job. There was one of those people in this store. And pretty quickly, he went in and started to uh, kind of tell us about this shop. And he told us that this was the very first Twinings tea shop. And by their reckoning, this little shop and this company that it represented was responsible for the Western adoption of tea and actually like England's adoption of tea as the drink that you drank all the time. That's one of my favorite things about visiting my friends in England is that you get asked if you'd like a cup of tea at least 10 times a day. Um, the answer is always yes, by the way. If you say no, five minutes later when everybody's drinking your tea, you'll be, oh, so disappointed. Um, there's me and my friend Joe. And uh, as we were, he, he poured us many, many samples of different tea and shared a bit about the history of tea in England. Uh, when people in England first began to drink tea, it was extremely exclusive and very expensive. And the costs of getting it were huge. And so only the wealthiest of houses could actually afford it. It's said that it was kept like in a lockbox and that the lady of the house was the only one who had a key to it. Um, so while every other aspect of the social gathering was uh, provided by servants in the house, it was the lady of the house who opened the tea to put the precious leaves in the pot. But when something is both rare and expensive, when it is precious, something else often happens. And that's, it gets counterfeited. Um, just, is my mic kind of bugging out a little bit? What if we go like that? Is that still there? How's that? Ba, ba, ba. Hoo-hoo. Okay. Um, so, when something's rare, exclusive, and expensive, it often gets counterfeited. Uh, we you know that, if you've ever wanted to buy something expensive and get it for cheap. Um, well, it turns out that people, it was so rare and so expensive, many people didn't actually even know what tea tasted like. So the counterfeiters had a real open market. So people would try selling anything as tea. So herbs, other kinds of leaves, apparently even dried grass clippings. Now, if your prime purpose in drinking tea is status, and if you've never actually tasted the real thing, grass clippings might just do the trick. But of course, you really want real tea. <laughs> well, this morning, we're concluding this section of Matthew, um, where he records Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where the overall theme has been all about what is real, what is genuine, versus what is not. Uh, I actually got to preach the first sermon in this section of uh, Matthew, and now here we are at the last. 
and it's good for us to kind of just review where we started from. Jesus opens the message with eight statements that we call the Beatitudes, and they put us on to an important theme. Matthew 4.23 introduces this sermon by saying that Jesus was going about preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's what this message is about. The opening of the sermon and the whole sermon itself is not Jesus giving just a bunch of quaint, cute, inspirational sayings. It isn't him on an anti-organized religion campaign. He's not telling us to just do more. He's not canceling the law, nor is he increasing the law. He's preaching good news. He is the king, and he is describing what a kingdom under King Jesus actually looks like. And in so doing, to shape us into the people who will recognize his work in our midst. He starts out the intro to the sermon with the Beatitudes, saying that kingdom people realize that they bring nothing to the table and they don't need to. Kingdom people mourn because they see what could be and what will be and wish that it would get here sooner. Kingdom people don't take themselves too seriously because they viscerally feel they cannot, or because they ultimately stand for an audience of one. Kingdom people hunger and thirst for righteousness because they feel viscerally that they cannot live without righteousness. They're merciful because they know they have received so much mercy. They're pure in heart because they know that God sees everything in their life and it's not worth it to pretend. They're creators of peace because they know that the king is now on his throne. And they're persecuted because of righteousness, because they understand what is really true, that Jesus is king. And that's how he intros this and then preaches this theme more and more. And we see, we've been in this sermon since last March, where he describes, not this one, like the sermon that Jesus preached. It may already feel like you've been in this one since March. I don't know, but that's on me. Um, but he continues preaching and he says, they are so transformed, these kingdom people, that they become like salt and light. They know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the foreshadowing of scripture. They see anger as the root of violence. They see lust as the rehearsal for relational fractures. Their reputation is secure, so they don't need to lie. They know that their king is just, so revenge is unnecessary. They love their enemies. They give because their money is not their own. They pray because God is king and he is trustworthy. They fast because they want to remind themselves of their hunger for God. They are not anxious about their futures because they know God cares for them. They realize that they are not the ultimate judge of behavior. They ask God for good things because they know that he is good and they love one another. And all of this sermon is descriptive of and instructive about what a genuine follower of Jesus looks like. And Jesus wants us to genuinely follow him in reliant relationship on his very person. And so he concludes like this. Would you stand with me as we read this? We're in Matthew 7, and this is at verse 15. This is his conclusion to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, a genuine disciple. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house in sand And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us enough to give us these words. Lord, we hope that in response to your sermon, Lord, and in response to this morning, that we would desire to be a people who are the real thing who are genuine followers of you and who have been impacted by who you are. So, Lord, mold our hearts, make us sensitive to what your spirit is saying to us. Um, And as you do, may the world know something different because of what you've done in the lives of the people here at Hillside. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You can take a seat. So you've spent nearly a year hearing Jesus tell us about what it looks like to be a genuine follower of his and what it looks like to be a member of the kingdom and how this kingdom is good news. And yet after all of that, how come at the end it still feels really uncomfortable to hear him say that there's such a thing as a true and a false follower? Does that make you uncomfortable? It feels a little judgy, right? Rude, maybe intolerant. But as much as it feels intolerant to say that some are in and some are out, if we're honest with ourselves, we actually want there to be some boundary markers around what it means to be a Christian, right? Because we want to be able to distinguish ourselves. I I know for our youth, uh, there's always a big question that goes something like this. I'm a Christian, but those people call themselves Christians, and I don't think that I believe what they believe. I don't know if I agree with this brand of Christianity. And as tolerant and non-judgy as we may want to be, we actually deep down want there to be some kind of dividing line, don't we? Maybe some of you are hoping that you can divide yourself from some of the worship services of the Capitol storming, or you want to disassociate from Christians who participated in the Holocaust, or the whole story of residential schools. Like, that's not Christianity. You want there to be a line in the sand. You hope that your faith is not just tied to a single political ideology or to a neglectful church leader or to a broken denominational sect. You want those boundary lines. But we also fear boundary lines, right? Because if there's such a thing as a true Christian or a false Christian, that means that simply calling yourself Christian doesn't necessarily mean that you are one. Just as much as calling this weird grass water tea doesn't make it tea. And so Jesus guides us here, and he speaks both to our hopes and to our fears. He says, yeah, don't worry. 
there actually is a boundary marker between someone who is a Christian and someone who is not a Christian. He preaches about what true discipleship looks like. And then in light of this, he says, now that you know what is true about my people, beware. Beware of false teachers because they will do everything in their power to look harmless, sheep's clothing, but they are truly exceedingly dangerous. Now, can I give you a warning about this warning? The moment that I mention the word false prophet or false teacher or wolf in sheep's clothing, we each have a really funny habit. It's not really funny. It's peculiar. (laughs) We immediately bring to mind the person who represents the ideology that we hate. And then we listen to the rest of what Jesus says as if this is about them. Why? Well, because we all think that we're really discerning people that we're exceedingly holy, and that God's perspective is for sure the same as ours. And everyone else is gullible, but I'm not. I think for myself. I do research. You can't fool me. May God have mercy on us if we think that his warning to us here is not warranted, that it was just for the other people. The precise characteristic of a wolf in sheep's clothing is that it is precisely the person that you would love to follow that you are most blind to. Jesus is not warning your gullible friend about false teachers. He is warning you. He knows you. He loves you. And he knows that your and my self-importance is the most likely thing to blind us from the one who would kill us. So it is comforting that Jesus does not leave us out to dry. He doesn't actually direct us to be paranoid as a result and start a discernment blog. Jesus actually seems to promise that if we look at the right things, relying on him, we will be able to recognize true from false. He says we ought to look at the fruit of their lives. Now, the analogy of fruit here is important. Um, and throughout the rest of the Bible, because you can't conjure up fruit. Fruit is the natural outcome of the kind of tree that you are. And Jesus says as much. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You're supposed to say, no, no, they're not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. Um, Ultimately, as flashy as someone may be, as much as they try to look like a good tree, they will not be able to hide when the season comes for them to bear fruit. Uh, I, in high school, was one of those people who just signed up for literally everything, and this caused conflicts, and there was a point when I was taking uh, Infotech 11, and that actually conflicted with another thing that I wanted to do that came up, which is Horticulture Club. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, So I had to drop Infotech to join Horticulture Club. Um, So at Horticulture Club, I'm in Chilliwack, yeah. So I had to, uh, part of this club is we'd go after school. Yeah, it was after school program too as well, by the way, on a Monday. And we used to go from my school to the local university, UFB. And we got, there's an instructor there who was great and would kind of teach us about plants and everything. And it was really cool. 
And, well, okay, cool to some. <laughs> but, uh, and my parents' like guest bedroom was like a greenhouse at some point because I'd collected all these little plants, and we were making poinsettias turn green to red and all this stuff. And we had, I, one of the things that I had was like a little lemon tree that we planted from a lemon seed. Yeah, I mean, it hadn't grown lemons yet, but it was this little, it was about this big. And it was neat, and everything about it was like a lemon tree. You could rub the leaves, and you could smell citrus, and it was wonderful. Um, the problem is it doesn't germinate for probably like 10 to 15 years. But I was like, I will like buckle in and have patience for this lemon. The trouble is, because we just planted it from store-bought, like from the seed from an actual lemon at the store, and the fruit that we get at the store is being selectively bred, and like, which is really amazing and cool. Um, but what it means is that there's a bunch of different genetic histories in there. And my professor said there's probably like a one in three to one in four chance that it'll actually be a good tasting lemon at the end, like the type that you'd buy at the store. Uh, it, but it may just take off after one of its other ancestors, which is shriveled and gross, and it'll look nice and smell beautiful, but you won't eat the lemons. But you won't until those 15 years are up and the fruit is actually germinated, actually know what type of tree this actually came from. This is similar to what Jesus is talking about here. What kind of fruit is it that we're looking for? If we're looking for this fruit, this is the marker, that tells us what type of tree it is. What fruit are we looking for and how do we tell? Well, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you'll remember the passage that directly comes before this one. Pastor Derwin cared for us well by reflecting on Jesus' words. That the way of following Jesus is narrow. It's not the roadway with no boundary markers. Following Jesus actually means following Jesus. So when, in the same breath as that, he tells us to beware of false prophets, these deceptively attractive leaders, Jesus is pointing out one of the chief characteristics of a false prophet. They pretend that the way is not narrow. This is the theme through all of scripture. Jeremiah expresses God's sadness over the people who followed false prophets. These false prophets notoriously cried out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Don't worry, everyone. I know this pessimist, Jeremiah, keeps saying, thus says the Lord, and telling you, turn from evil. But he's out of date. Let's just enjoy love and peace. Well, it sounds nice, but the problem of false prophets isn't that they're just optimists. It's not that they're really hopeful that the grace of God will come through and bring peace. The problem is that they are actively deceptive for their own gain. They don't really care whether the wide road does or does not lead to destruction. They primarily care that they have a wide enough road for a bunch of people to follow after them. Because then they get to be leader. They get to be God. And this is why Jesus warns you. He warns me. In his entire sermon that Jesus has preached on what it looks like to follow him, everything we've been going over over the last year, I guarantee you that there are things that just sound too hard, too outdated, too inconvenient, or too weird. And I promise you there is someone who will offer you a way of following Jesus that lets you off the hook for that thing. And that is such an attractive option, hey? It is for me. In John 12, Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you the truth. Unless a, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life, by contrast, 
in this world will keep it for eternal life. We follow Jesus who died for our sake, and we should expect a similar pathway for our own. If anyone points you to a life of following Jesus that costs nothing of you, beware. That is not the Christian life. Oh, to be sure, you can follow that way, and you may enjoy it for a time, but don't be deceived. That is not the Christian way. That's not a genuine Christian life. And that's not because we're obsessed with suffering, as some people would think. (laughs) Not at all. Um, If what you just heard is that the Christian life is about beating yourself into submission, you're all wrong. Um, If you're a social worker or involved in child and family development, you know that it is actually abusive, not loving, for a parent to impose no restrictions on their child. That's a category of abuse called neglect. Simply smiling and giving a thumbs up to everything that they come to you with isn't supporting and loving. It's dangerous and a recipe for disaster. God is not an abusive or neglectful parent. When we come to him asking him to bring us life, he will, even though the road to life means following him through death. A Christian life with no sacrifices sounds really appealing, but it will lead to destruction. Jesus is concerned about this because false prophets form false followers of Jesus. Followers who believe that they can follow, but on the wide way. Verses 21 to 23 are some of the most sobering verses for me in all of Scripture. It is this image of the last day, when Jesus returns to restore and renew all things permanently. And on that day, we are told that our lives will be examined. The question will be asked, does this person belong to Christ? And according to Jesus, many will approach the throne of grace saying, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that we've done for you. And he will reply, I never knew you. False prophets, false gospels are not dangerous because Christians can't handle criticism. It's not a censorship operation. It's a discipleship crisis. The false way of Jesus says peace when there's actually no peace. And it never calls me to die to myself and follow. The striking thing about this person who comes, Lord, Lord, who Jesus doesn't know, is that they understand all the right things. They call Jesus the right title, Lord, Lord, they get it. And they're doing good things in his name. And yet Jesus says he never knew them. We only truly have a relationship with the risen Jesus when our independence is pressed upon by his. The striking phrase is that I never knew you. If you'll give me permission, uh, perhaps it might be accurate to say it another way. You never let yourself be known by me. Your life wasn't impacted by our relationship. We might read this, I do, and, and feel bad for this person. It looks like they're genuine. They seem sincere. They believe that they should have access to the kingdom. And they actually did a lot of good stuff. They prophesied, they cast out demons, and did mighty works, and all in Jesus' name, even. But while we might be concerned, while we might be concerned with what we do, Jesus is actually concerned with our hearts. 
which is a shocker, hey? Every single point in Jesus' sermon so far has been about our hearts. What Jesus sees in these people who he turns away are hearts that love the idea of Jesus, but will not trust him as Lord, as boss, as their king. He says it's not about those who come to him with the right title, Lord, Lord. A Christian is one who does what God has asked them to do. Evidently, knowing Jesus' title and doing great things in his name, they're not, they're not bad. But that's not what makes them a Christian. You follow? This is where I wonder sometimes about our tendency to see Jesus as like our leader, maybe like as our life guide, our guru, as opposed to our Lord, someone who's ultimately an authority over us. I don't think the terminology of being a Jesus follower, I don't think it's a bad one. I use it all the time. But I think sometimes we follow Jesus because we have decided he is worth following. Said another way, we've looked at all the options and all the worldview brands and have come to the conclusion that Christianity, that's the one that we like the most. We'll click follow, maybe even turn on notifications. And Jesus should be tickled pink that we did. He won the battle of the brands. But that actually doesn't place Jesus as king. It just makes him prime minister. On a political term where I, the voter, get to keep reassessing every policy decision I see and decide, ah, do I agree with this? Maybe election 2024, I'll dabble in a different worldview. Overall, I like the guy, but all this dying to myself seems cumbersome. Maybe let's just pick, love one another, don't judge, care for the vulnerable, do some miracles. Jesus says you can call that what you like, but it's not tea. That's not following the will of the Father in heaven. And I think this grieves the heart of God. Not because he's stubborn or a tyrant or because he's trying to rudely stifle your self-expression. It grieves him because he is your Father who loves you and he wants to give you full life, which means you must give him your full life. If you follow Jesus as an idea, if you think of Christianity as a lifestyle, you can get by on your own works. Doing lots of stuff on your own initiative for the sake of a brand, that makes sense. But if Jesus is a person with whom you walk in relationship, it has to all be about the grace of that relationship. Jesus' critique here, his heartbreak, is that these people who came to him viewed him as an ideology as a brand to be followed. And they slapped his brand on everything they did. Look, Jesus, we're building your brand identity. Look at all the miracles, the prophecies, the demons being cast out. There's a contrast between true, the true and the false way of Christianity. And if you're anything like me, you're going to hate it. The false way, the grass clippings pretending to be tea, is all about wide roads, big followings, and spectacular performances the kind of stuff that our world and our culture and probably our Christian subculture really loves. The fruit that Jesus says comes from following him are the things that are secret. They're never known in big auditoriums, but around the quiet of a dinner table over years of close relationship. As a pastor, this really terrifies me, and I think in all the right ways. The reality is, in our world of measuring success, tracking metrics, 
establishing smart goals, planning and organizing, the quiet realities of our spiritual lives might get overlooked. We might look at the great forest that we've built and never taken the time to look at the fruit on the trees within it. The reality is that unless you and I, unless we share life together as a community, my success as a pastor will most likely be measured by the spectacular, if you will. The demons cast out, the mighty works, the prophecy, or the number of kids at youth, the quality of a sermon, maybe the competency of my ability to lead music, perhaps how charismatic I am, or whether or not I'm a good teacher or administrator. Am I good at leadership development? These are all really good metrics, and I actually hope to grow in each of them. But Jesus' metric of the Christian is not productivity, but faithfulness. In the secret of my personal life, am I generous? Am I honest? Do I pray? Do I trust God? Do I welcome the stranger? Do I watch what I think? Do I think about what I watch? Am I easily angered? Do I hold grudges? Jesus cares about our hearts, and that is why this entire sermon has been around our heart. And because it is about our heart, and because our hearts are broken, it's about the grace of Jesus to help heal and form our hearts, to change our hearts, and to mold us to be like him. And because it's about the grace of Jesus, it is also about the presence of Jesus. It is about his knowing us, his changing us, and thereby our knowing him. Family, by the, the goodness of God, I pray and expect that you will prophesy in his name, that you will cast out demons in his name, that you will do many mighty works in his name. But while those things are good, they are not the marker of one who is in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, there's a Scottish minister, Alistair Begg, and he paints an illustration in an excellent sermon of his. I'll spare you an attempt at his accent. But I want to recount just a segment from, from what he preached. He says, many of you are familiar with that famous evangelical question. If you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? And if you answer that in the first person, you've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. The only proper answer is in the third person. Because he. Because he. He says, think about the thief on the cross. Wouldn't it be fun to find that guy and ask him, like, how did that work out for you? <laughs> One minute you were cussing out the guy with your friend. You've never been to a Bible study. You've never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? He says, that's what the angel must have said. You know, what are you doing here? I don't know. <laughs> well, well, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. Well, excuse me. Let me go get my supervisor. Well, so they go and get the supervisor angel. Well, just a few questions for you, sir. First of all, like, are, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I've never heard about it in my life. Well, what about the doctrine of Scripture? Well, the guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, this angel says, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. 
That is the only answer. And if we don't preach that to ourselves every day, I will find myself beginning to trust myself and trust my experiences and trust the things that I've done for Jesus. That's all part of my fallenness as a human being. It's the end of Alistair. Uh, scripture says that it is the understanding of the reality of the person of God, or called the fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. So it is really unsurprising that Jesus concludes this all with this familiar story. There's that little ditty, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Um, we won't go through the whole thing. It's quite repetitive. But now it's stuck in your head, so... He says that hearing this Sermon on the Mount, hearing the words of the person of Yahweh and recognizing him as Lord, and therefore doing them, that is an exceedingly wise thing. It is recognizing that storms will arise. These storms will make you wish that you didn't have to live up to the Jesus demands on your life, that they weren't so costly. The storm may make you wish that you could be angry or vengeful, they might make you wish that you could accumulate wealth to your heart's content or pursue everything that your imagination presents to you. But if you are wise, you will establish your house not on the shifting sand, but on the relationship that you have formed with the living God, the one who calls himself your rock of help, who does not shift like shadows. If you establish yourself on the rock of Jesus, trusting in him, trusting in the relationship that he has, and let him actually be in relationship rather than ideology for you. These warnings will birth wisdom in you instead of fear and paranoia. You won't be terrified that you're going to be led astray, but you'll go, oh, no, Jesus is with me. He's helping me see these fruit, and I'm being formed by him. He will help you look for the real fruit of the people who you are following. He will help you to see the red flags of self-promotion and easy roads to freedom. And if you are in transforming relationship with him, and it is resulting in the life that he just described in the sermon, if your life is starting to look more and more like tea, you won't need to worry that you'll be among that group who say, Lord, Lord, to hear, I never knew you. Because there's evidence in your life that you do know him. He is impacting you. And as he walks with you, he's forming this type of person within you. And friends, like I said, this is an impossible thing to do publicly. If you only live your life closed off with barriers that prevent people from getting to know you, you may be blind to the development of fruit or good fruit or bad fruit in your life. So for me to be healthy, for you to be healthy, we need to actually be in long, vulnerable, confessing, honest community with one another. Because we can't do this on our own. <laughs> it's really easy to do a bunch of great public things and never have anybody look inside of you. So I'd encourage you, um, we, we're starting life groups again. Uh, if you're not part of a life group, join one. And if you are part of a life group, be that weird person who takes things a little bit deeper. <laughs> They'll be okay. I hope you love your people in your life group enough to, you know, see them make it to the end. <laughs> Jesus uh, concludes this sermon, and we're told that the crowds were astonished because of his authority. Friends, I hope that we walk away not just astonished. Astonishment in itself doesn't make him Lord, but I pray that we'd walk away 
seeking relationship with him, that we love him so much that we actually trust him to impact our lives. And in so doing, he will shape us into people who are genuine, aren't just glass clippings floating around in a cup of water. Let me pray for you and for me. Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you love us enough to form us into the real thing. And you love us enough to warn us about those who would seek it, to, to bring us to death. Lord, would you protect our community from those who would seek to bring death to us. Thank you that in your power um, and your wisdom that uh, you can do that. Lord, that you have conquered all the powers of evil. But we ask, Lord, that you'd, that you'd protect us. you give us wisdom and discernment. Lord, that we would be caught up with the attention to real fruit and not the things that are just our own idols. Holy Spirit, I move in us, uh, shape us, search us and see if there's any unclean thing in us, Lord, and lead us in the way everlasting. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to leave you with a uh, benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Would you stand? Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with every good thing for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in this peace, uh, in this relationship with him. Uh, and I invite you as you go, uh, stick around, talk to some people. Begin maybe forming some of these relationships that you need. And get some bread. There's lots of bread. <laughs> Take care and see you again. <laughs>